You don't really need to know, or probably should. I'm Kira Revan, and this, this is the Sunday Seven. On today's episode of the Sunday 7, there are dire warnings from the godfather of AI, the US is facing yet another health epidemic, and researchers figure out how to watch a movie through the eyes of a mouse. But first, it was in this day in 1992, the space shuttle Endeavour blasted off on its maiden voyage. Seven. Time out for many men of medicine usually means just long enough to enjoy a cigarette. And because they know what a pleasure it is to smoke a mild, good-tasting cigarette, they're particular about the brand they choose. We've come a long way since doctors endorse smoking on TV. Most cigarette ads in the UK were banned in 2002, and the number of smokers dropped from 27% in the early 2000s to around 12% in 2022, the lowest level on record. But at the same time as it was being discouraged, vaping and e-cigarettes emerged as a cool, hip alternative. Now, according to figures from Action on Smoking and Health, around 30% of 16- and 17-year-olds are current e-cigarette users, rising to 40% for over 18-year-olds. Worldwide stats are similar, especially in Australia, who this week announced a ban on all recreational vaping. The new measure is intended to ensure that vapes are only sold as aids to quit ciggies. Health Minister Mark Butler described vaping as the biggest behavioural issue in high schools. One in six um, teenagers aged 14 to 17 has vaped. One in four young Australians aged 18 to 24 has also vaped. Unfortunately, the gains that we have made in tobacco could be undone by a new threat to public health. Vaping was sold to governments and to communities all around the world as a therapeutic product. It was not sold as a recreational product. But that is what it's become. But do all experts feel this way? To find out more, we sat down with Dr Debbie Robson, an expert in tobacco harm reduction from King's College London. How far do you agree with the ban? Do you think it will work? I don't agree with the ban and I don't think it will effectively tackle nicotine use. I don't think it's helpful to create an environment where people easily uh, have access to tobacco, but then severely restrict access to vaping. If you're really serious about helping people who smoke, vaping needs to be made widely available and accessible to smokers. And for young people who've never smoked? So I think we need to do everything we can to reduce access to vaping products to under 18. But I'm not sure whether the Australian policy is going to do that. What are the health risks of vaping? I think the longest research study lasted about three years. It suggests it improved respiratory health uh, in smokers. But I would say that nicotine vaping, it started to grow in popularity in this country about 2013. So in that 10 years, we haven't seen our hospitals uh, full of vapors. In the UK, they're sort of going the other way, encouraging vaping as a method to stop smoking. How do the different approaches compare? So in the UK, our health policies, they support the use of e-cigarettes to help people stop smoking. And we've got clinical guidelines that recommend the use of e-cigarettes for first-line treatment. And we're now seeing examples of vapes being offered in acute hospitals. So yeah, we, we're quite different to the policies in Australia. How do you predict vaping in the UK will change? Well, I'd hope that we see vaping prevalence increase and smoking prevalence decrease. We had a government statement released a couple of weeks ago, which might lead to tighter access for under-18s, which would be a good thing, um, and more encouraging 
option for adults who smoke to access free e-cigarettes, perhaps through our network of stop smoking services with the newly announced Swap to Stop scheme. effort is underway to track and record marine life in the world's oceans. It's estimated there are more than 2 million species in the deep but only about 240,000 have been categorised. The Ocean Census aims to identify 100,000 unknown species in the next 10 years. Jaikota Vermani is Executive Director of the Schmidt Ocean Institute, the body leading the census. We've only discovered 10% of the ocean's life and speaking to CNN, she revealed her hopes for the remaining 90%. They can tell us a number of things. First of all, they could give us insights into life, both on this planet, but also on other planets. Marine life has also given us new medicines. So, for example, remdesivir, which was one of the antiviral drugs uh, used to tackle COVID-19, is actually derived from sea sponge. And there are other drugs that treat HIV, cancer, heart disease. So there's a number of things that, you know, discovery of marine life Hmm. really helps us with. For those of us who spend most of our time on land, we may not quite realise how vast and diverse the ocean is. The ocean covers about 70% of the surface area of our planet, but it contains about 97% of the world's living space. So it's a huge environment. It's really difficult to access. It's deep, it's dark, it's got high pressure. And this is really challenging, this species identification, because it Right now, on average, it takes 21 years to identify a new species, and we really need to speed that up. And we need to speed that up quickly. This is the Ocean Census Scientific Director, Alex Rogers. We are in a race against time. Um, We have global warming, the ocean's losing oxygen, it's acidifying, and as a result, we're losing species. Um, If that process continues, then we will face another major extinction in the ocean and we will lose great swathes of the tree of life essentially. The Ocean Census will be the largest programme in history to discover new marine life embarking on dozens of expeditions across the global ocean. Still to come on the Sunday 7, the godfather of AI warns of its dangers and the US faces a loneliness epidemic. If you're worried about the recent pace of AI development, you're not alone. In April, Elon Musk and thousands of other tech leaders and researchers signed an open letter demanding a pause on the development of the most powerful artificial intelligence systems. Now, Jeffrey Hinton, known as the godfather of AI, has quick Google over the dangers of artificial intelligence. Dr. Hinton's pioneering research on neural networks and deep learning has paved the way for current AI systems like Google's Bard Chatbot and Microsoft's ChatGPT. But now he wishes he could take it back. His main concern, the robots taking over. A lot of things that a lot of other people have talked about to do with being able to produce lots of text automatically so you can get lots of very effective spam bots. I'm not really talking about those. There's another particular thing I want to talk about, which is the existential risk of what happens when these things get more intelligent than us. The kind of intelligence we're developing is very different from the intelligence we have. It's as if you had 
10,000 people. And whenever one person learned something, everybody automatically knew it. And that's how these chats can know so much more than any one person. Right now, they're not more intelligent than us, as far as I can tell. Um, but I think they soon may be. But still, Dr. Hinton does acknowledge the potential benefits of AI. They'd be like a family doctor that had seen 10 million patients and have probably seen lots of patients just like the condition you go to the family doctor with. That would greatly improve medicine. In the shorter term, I think we get many more benefits than we get risks. So I don't think we should stop developing this stuff. A lot of the uses of it are going to be very beneficial, and that's going to encourage people to keep developing it. But we need to think hard about ways in which we can develop it where it's not going to get control. Some experts in the industry say the risks are still hypothetical, but have we already gone too far? We don't know. I think if you stop developing it now, this existential risk would be mitigated. But obviously we're going to develop them much further because they're so useful. And then we have to worry about what's going to happen. I've really gone public to encourage people to think very seriously about what they're going to do. It's one of those things where there's no way that people weren't going to explore it. The issue is now that we've discovered it works better than we expected a few years ago, what do we do to mitigate the long-term risks of things more intelligent than us taking control? The US Surgeon General has declared a new public health epidemic in America, loneliness. A new report finds loneliness can have profound effects on mental health as well as heart disease, stroke and dementia. Social isolation increases the risk of premature death by nearly 30% and attracts a decline in social connections and links all this to billions of dollars in healthcare costs. This is US Surgeon General Dr Vivek Murthy. Loneliness is more than just a bad feeling. It has real consequences for our mental and physical health. It increases our risk of depression, anxiety, and suicide. But social disconnection also raises the risk of heart disease and dementia and premature death on levels on par with smoking daily and even greater than the risks that we see associated with obesity. And this current health epidemic is something that has only been exasperated by COVID-19. COVID has poured fuel on a fire that was already burning. We've seen that technology has fundamentally changed how we interact with one another and unfortunately has often replaced what used to be rich in-person connections uh, with online connections, which often are of lower quality. And finally, we see that people are, are just experiencing tremendous change in their lives. They're moving more, they're changing jobs more often, uh, and that can disrupt a lot of our social relationships. What we have to do now in modern life is intentionally build in the infrastructure we need for connection in our individual lives. The cure, Dr. Marty says, is not only personal change, but societal change as well. In-person matters. You know, uh, connecting online has its place, has its value, but it's not a substitute for in-person connection. We really do need both. Among his recommendations, there's a focus on community organization, mobilizing the health sector to raise awareness and reconsidering how we use technology. The key is to remember there are individual steps that we can take. Just spending 15 minutes a day with people we care about, making sure that we're fully present when we're interacting with others, that we're not distracted by technology, looking for ways to help 
other people and neighbors and co-workers recognizing that small acts of service can be powerful in making us feel more connected with one another. These are the small steps that can make a big difference in how connected we feel. Still to come on the Sunday 7, 3D printers made out of Lego and scientists recreate an episode of Black Mirror with mice. Right after this. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. You're listening to The Sunday 7. Follow us for your weekday news espresso. Or maybe try our UK edition. It's all in the usual places. When it comes to climate change and global heating, carbon dioxide is the usual scapegoat. But there's another greenhouse gas that could be doing even more damage to the planet, methane. In fact, nearly 20% of the planet's warming can be attributed to methane alone. Methane's a big problem. That's where Professor Amy Rosenzweig comes in. Methane is the second most abundant greenhouse gas next to carbon dioxide, and it over a 20-year period actually has 84 times the global warming potential as carbon dioxide. So over that period of time, it's more potent. Professor Rosenweig is a bioinorganic chemist and structural biologist at Northwestern University, and she's on a mission to address the methane problem with bacteria. One way to address the huge abundance of methane gas is to harvest it and convert it into methanol, which it can be used for fuel or as a feedstock for making chemicals. And the way that we're addressing this conversion of methane to methanol in our laboratory is by studying bacteria that do this actually very difficult chemical reaction. If we understood on the molecular level how the bacteria are able to convert methane to methanol, we might be able to translate that information into a new way to uh, deal with methane in the atmosphere. And this research couldn't come at a better time. Given our current situation with climate change, it's 
critically important that we understand everything about methane gas uh, and understanding how bacteria can help us to mitigate methane emissions is absolutely critical. Building for 90 years is just the beginning because it has always been innately and uniquely human to be a builder. Last year, Lego turned 90. For almost a century, the small tessellating plastic cubes have delighted children and adults alike with their endless creative possibilities. With a handful of Lego, you can build castles, robots, rockets, and as a group of Welsh researchers have recently demonstrated, you can even build 3D printers. Commercial 3D printers, they cost upwards of sort of tens of thousands of pounds. This is Dr. Chris Thomas from Cardiff University. Our initial idea was to develop a printer that we could use, a 3D bioprinter, which was a lot cheaper and accessible to many research labs, not just ours. The, the idea came through, again, discussion with a research group that we could use a very accessible material, um, and that material was Lego. So we, we looked for designs of 3D printers and adapted that design then to um, incorporate our microfluidic devices uh, to be able to print tissues um, and cells um, exactly where we want them. Using Lego Mindstorm kits and a programmable controller, the Cardiff researchers have designed an inexpensive and easy-to-build 3D printer that is contributing to pioneering research. One of the tissues they've been printing is human skin. Human tissue samples are needed for biomedical research to help with scientific understanding of thousands of medical conditions, as well as to develop new effective treatments. While 3D bioprinting offers hope for the development of these samples, it can be expensive and off-the-shelf devices can't always be used in the lab. As Dr. Oliver Castell explains, the Cardiff team hope that their Lego 3D bioprinter can offer a technology proficient, scientifically robust and a low-cost solution. So Lego is a, is a very versatile construction toy, essentially, but it's built with uh, manufactured to very high precision, very high tolerances, and you can build things with very high reproducibility from one build to the next, surprisingly high, actually. It's readily available and it's cheap. We also thought that it's something that everyone is familiar with, so students who are not necessarily familiar with engineering can get their teeth into building a machine and a robot out of a material that they're already very familiar with. So this enabled students from across a diversity of backgrounds to be able to contribute to building and evaluating this printer. And it's also a material that, because it's readily and widely available, the parts are all standardised, we could share a parts list so that other laboratories across the world could build an equivalent printer to the one we have developed. And in fact, we've been doing that internally. We've had new students come in and build a new printer to replicate our existing ones in less than a day. And that gives us you know, multiple printers that we can start further refining, further developing and doing further experimentation with.
Do you remember that one episode of Black Mirror, the entire history of you? It's the one where an implanted device records what people see and hear, allowing a person to rewatch their memories with predictably horrible consequences. Well, it seems scientists are one step closer to making this nightmare a reality. Scientists from the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology have developed a new machine learning algorithm called Zebra, which has the potential to reveal the hidden structure in data recorded from the brain. They've successfully used it to see a movie clip through the eyes of a mouse. This is Mackenzie Mathis, a neuroscientist who worked on the study. The mouse is just passively watching this, much like you or I might be in a movie theater. And then what we wanted to do is at the same time, they're recording from this mouse's brain. And so we asked the question, could we actually reconstruct what the animal was watching just purely from the neural data? So we used our new algorithm, Zebra, to build this latent representation of the embedding space. But with this algorithm, we could do this with over 95% accuracy on these held out movies. So we think this is sort of a first demonstration that it's actually possible to do this brain-machine interface style decoding. Uh, it doesn't mean we can read, of course, the mice's mind or human minds, but it definitely means that the representation space is rich enough to understand even this level of resolution, which is quite exciting. Researchers say despite the creepy nature of the study, the goal of Zebra is to uncover the structure on complex biological systems that could have clinical implications beyond neuroscience. This has been the Sunday 7. However you're listening, do us a favour and hit the follow button. We'll be back tomorrow at 7am with a regular Smart 7 Ireland edition. Have a great rest of the weekend. Written, produced and published by Daft Doris. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, this is Kira from the Smart 7 Ireland edition. Just to let you know, we're pausing this podcast from Friday the 25th of August, but you can still get up to speed in just seven minutes if you search the Smart 7 and catch up with our UK edition. Thanks for listening.